0: During the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus of Nazareth declared that the meek shall inherit the earth. Later, industrialist J. Paul Getty stated the meek shall inherit the earth, but not its mineral rights. This statement speaks testament to the fortitude of the men and women who plunged into the earth to retrieve dead dinosaur energy that fuels so much of our modern world. This is the story of the coal miners of West Virginia and their attempt to take a stand against the corrupt system that they found themselves in. My name is Jake Barton. Welcome to Historium. Episode 22, The Battle of Blair Mountain. The Industrial Revolution radically altered the concept of labor. Before it, most work was simple agrarian tasks performed on the family farm but after it, labor became more industrial, strict, regimented, often dangerous. This is perhaps most apparent in the coal mining industry. During the turn of the century, coal fueled almost everything, and owners of coal companies pushed for rapid expansion in the rich coal fields of Appalachia. West Virginia was the heart of coal country, and coal was the crux of West Virginia's economy. The owners of these coal companies, often called coal barons, were rugged capitalists and sought to increase their profits by whatever means necessary. One way of doing this was to have a monopoly on as many aspects of their employees' lives as possible. Coal companies would provide minimal housing for their miners that was mandatory and was automatically taken out of their paychecks. Additionally, the miners were paid in scrip a company-specific currency that could only be used at company stores. The exchange rate between coal company scrip and legal U.S. tender was horrendous, so the miners were forced to use their scrip at the company store where the prices were set by the coal companies. All of these factors created an environment of control that kept miners trapped in a cycle that left only one real option for them, obligatory loyalty to their employers. Additionally, coal miners were paid by the amount of coal that they extracted, not by the hour. The miners could also be docked pay based on the quality of their coal, and the scales that weighed the amounts each miner brought out was controlled by the company. These uneducated miners do very little in regards to coal quality or scale accuracy, and were often undercut even more so as a result. And that doesn't even touch on the horrific working conditions themselves. Miners would often work 12 to 18 hour days, and since they were paid by the amount of coal extracted and not by the hour, they often had to bring their families with them into the mines. Women and young children would emerge from back-breaking labor in the mines, trying to help their husbands and fathers get by. And when they finished, they would walk back to their mandatory company housing, faces stained black, where they would try to get a few hours sleep before returning back to the mine the next day. To say that the miners of West Virginia led difficult and exhausting lives with no chance of escape is an understatement. And all of this misery was the price of cheap coal that led to company profits. There seemed to be only one path towards a less miserable life and a less corrupt system. Unionizing. Several unions began emerging in the coal fields throughout Appalachia during the turn of the century and coal companies fought vigorously to keep the unions from gaining a foothold in their territory. They would enforce harsh penalties against anyone who spoke of the unions or anyone who possessed any union literature. They hired men from the Baldwin-Feltz Detective Agency. And I should mention that the word detective is used very loosely in the agency's title. The agents were rarely more than hired goons, there to keep the miners in line and to prevent any labor unions from forming. It's safe to say that the situation in the West Virginia coal fields at the beginning of the 1920s was nothing short of tense. The fuse continued to burn on the powder keg. May 19, 1920. The Baldwin-Felts agents left the mayor's office in the West Virginia town of Maidawan. The Stone Mountain Mining Company had a tremendous presence there, and most of the town were employed as coal miners for them. The Baldwin-Feltz agents had bribed the mayor $500 to place several machine guns on the tops of the buildings in the town, should they ever need them. The mayor, Cabal Testerman, declined. The agents, some concealing machine guns, headed to the miners' housing. A light drizzle began to fall. The agents evicted several families who had been rumored to have union sympathies. The agents pulled weapons on them and tossed them and their things, out into the rain. The Madawan chief of police, a lanky man with a large mustache named Sid Hatfield, caught wind of what was being done to some of the families in his town. He was from the family of Hatfields that had feuded with the McCoys all those years ago, and he was incredibly popular with the townspeople. He deputized a few miners and went to confront the agents. Mayor Testerman and several dozen miners and family members, looked on as Sid Hatfield presented the Baldwin Feltz agents with warrants for their arrest. The agents pulled out their own warrant for the police chief's arrest. We don't know who shot first. Things like that tend to be forgotten when the bullets start to fly. Bystanders fled and miners from all over heard the gunshots. Mayor Testerman soon lay bleeding on the ground, as did a deputized miner. The hired agents held their ground, but eventually, were outnumbered as more and more armed miners arrived on the scene. Agents began dropping as bullets began whizzing in from all sides. Most agents fled the gunfight and took off into the woods. One agent, Lee Feltz, a brother of a founder of the Baldwin Feltz Detective Agency, took refuge in a post office. Sid Hatfield calmly followed him inside. A single gunshot was heard from outside. And Police Chief Sid Hatfield soon emerged, with blood splattered on his pants. When the smoke cleared, seven agents were dead, along with two miners and the town's mayor. The gunfight became known as the Medawan Massacre. Although you could argue that it was the Baldwin-Feltz agents that were the ones massacred, the coal miners of West Virginia used it as their rallying cry, a Remember the Alamo of sorts. The hero of the Medawan Massacre, Sid Hatfield, soon became a local legend state police took control of meadowan but they did not work for the stone mountain mining company so the united mine workers of america or umwa the largest labor union in the state moved in and began unionizing the miners there sid hatfield did several photo ops with the umwa and befriended several activists including the famous labor organizer mother jones feeling empowered the miners in the town of Betawan went on strike on July 1st. However, when the state police left town, the Baldwin-Feltz agents returned, and several fights broke out over the next few weeks. Eventually, Sid Hatfield was tried for his crimes, but was acquitted by a sympathetic jury. August 1st, 1921. Sid Hatfield and his deputy, Ed Chambers, were called to be tried at yet another trial, this time for conspiracy. With the help of union lawyers, they were again acquitted. Hatfield Chambers and their two wives were walking down the courthouse steps when several Baldwin Feltz agents emerged from the courthouse and opened fire at the two men descending the steps. Both were killed almost instantly. Their wives watched in horror as the two bullet-riddled husbands bounced down the courthouse steps, leaving a scattered trail of blood in their wake. The agents walked calmly down the steps and fired a few more shots into the lifeless bodies of Sid Hatfield and Ed Chambers, just to be sure. The fuse burned faster towards the powder keg. The death of the local legend and his deputy infuriated the miners of West Virginia, even more so after the men responsible for their deaths were never even charged. The mining company bribed someone here, threatened someone there, until the only way to describe the company men was above the law. Miners in remote areas of West Virginia began to militarize, stockpiling weapons and ammunition, preparing for the war to come. Meanwhile, the mine company in Mingo County in southern West Virginia had crushed Union resistance and imprisoned hundreds of miners. The United Mine Workers of America, led by Mother Jones, planned a march to Mango County to demand that the prisoners be set free. The official leaders who began to plan the march were Frank Keeney and Fred Mooney. Unlike many of the men that they championed for, Keeney and Mooney were highly educated and very articulate. They decided to go to the very top to help their cause, using the massive planned march as leverage they met with the governor of West Virginia, Ephraim Morgan. They presented him with the petition of the miners' demands, but Governor Morgan was having none of it. He didn't want to do anything to disrupt the profits of the companies that had contributed to his reelection. He rejected Keeney and Mooney's petition, and the two returned to Kanawha County, West Virginia, to begin their organized march to Mingo. Upon arrival in Kanawha County, they found nearly thirteen thousand heavily armed miners, all ready for a fight. Mother Jones pleaded with them to have a peaceful march, not an armed invasion. Keeney and Mooney did their best to try to keep the peace, but they knew there was about to be a bloodbath. So the two labor union leaders fled the scene, but Mother Jones remained, trying her best to keep the march civilized. However, a fiery orator, Bill Blizzard, stoked the emotions of the miners and encouraged the call to violence. He soon became the new de facto leader of the angry men. Several train cars, commandeered by local miners, arrived full of more weapons and ammunition. Around 15,000 miners, armed with hunting rifles and World War I weaponry, began their 50-mile march to Mingo County. Only one thing stood in their way. Blair Mountain. The mountain was located in Logan County, whose sheriff, Don Schafin was a notorious opponent of coal miners unionizing. Funded by various coal companies, Schafin armed 2,000 of his own men, creating what he called the Logan Defenders. The Baldwin-Feltz agents, along with the Logan Defenders, began digging into Blair Mountain, awaiting the marching miners. August 25th, 1921. The Powder Keg Exploded. The Battle of Blair Mountain had begun. Small skirmishes took place all around the mountain at first. Firepower from the Logan Defenders proved superior, and the casualties on the Union Miner's side were steep. The miners had numbers on their side, but the Logan Defenders held the high ground. The fighting continued for several days. By this point, the coal companies paid for private biplanes to drop homemade mustard gas and explosive bombs on the mine worker's side. One bomb dropped close to a miner, but didn't go off. The miner brought the dud to Bill Blizzard, who was furious at the new cruel tactics. He ordered the men to push forward, losing men but gaining ground. They had pushed onto the mountain now, and were beginning their assault into Mingo County. Imagine the liberation felt by the men who were used and abused by a corrupt system, finally sticking it to the system itself. At this point, President Warren Harding was alerted of the situation. He threatened to send Martin MB-1 bombers to level the miners' side of the mountain. His advisors strongly urged against this, as a military attack against their own civilians would be seen in a very negative light. Harding decided to instead send the US Army. By this point, there had been several dozen deaths on the sheriff's side and hundreds on the side of the miners. The Federal forces arrived on September 2nd, and upon hearing of this, Bill Blizzard ordered his men to disperse. Reluctantly, they did, hiding their weapons in trees and rock crevices, fearing the eventual confiscation of any weapons that they took home. Many surrendered right on the mountain, happy that they were surrendering to their country and not a company. The Battle of Blair Mountain had ended. Over the next few months, 985 miners were indicted for murder, conspiracy to commit murder, accessory to murder, and treason against the state of West Virginia. Most of the miners were acquitted by sympathetic juries, while others served short sentences. When Bill Blizzard was put on trial, he stood defiantly as his lawyers presented the damning evidence of the cruelty of the Logan defenders, the unexploded bomb that had been dropped on the miners. Bill Blizzard was soon acquitted as well. In the short term, the Battle of Blair Mountain was an overwhelming victory for the mining companies. In the next decade, union membership plummeted and wouldn't recover until after Roosevelt's New Deal. But the Battle of Blair Mountain could be called a victory for the miners in the long term. It raised awareness for the harsh conditions that the coal miners worked in and stoked union membership far into the future. They may have lost the Battle of Blair Mountain, but they continued to fight a war of a different kind. In 2008, Blair Mountain was listed as a National Historic Site. Many amateur archaeologists still find rifles and ammunition hidden in caves and old trees, but in 2010, That listing was placed under review, as two coal companies, the Massey Energy Corporation and Arch Coal Incorporated, acquired permits to begin strip mining the entire mountain in a process known as mountaintop removal. Many activists have attempted to take legal action to prevent the coal companies from destroying Blair Mountain, and to prevent them from destroying the legacy of the men who fought against companies like them all those years ago. Historium is made by me, Jake Barton. You can find Historium on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you want to support the show, you can do so on Patreon. If you donate there, you can participate in polls to help choose the topics of future Historium episodes or get some sweet Historium merch. If you're short on cash, you can always rate Historium on iTunes or share a Historium episode with a friend. In fact, either of those would be awesome. You'll hear me again in two weeks. As always, thanks for listening.